0: You will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Oh, it's not good. Get in there, Maverick. It's no good. Cornelius and I have been indicted for heresy. It is evil. It is so evil. It is a bad bad. And welcome back to our deep dive into all things evil and bad. Hi, Michael's here again. Good to see you. And I have come to you this week to tell you that if you follow, you do not get to go your own way. Now, why do I get to tell you that? I get to tell you that because we're going to have some fun today. This is going to be fun. We are going to look at a heretic that just possibly might be you. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> All right. Before you go, he's lost it, folks. He's completely lost it. I haven't lost it. The reason I'm saying this is because we're looking at a theology that is, well, it's held purposefully by some Christians, but more likely it is held accidentally by the vast majority of those who hold to it today. And that is the heresy of. Antinomianism. Now, besides being an absolutely awesome Scrabble word, what did you just say? All right. Coined by Martin Luther. Why? Why is Martin Luther coined this word? Because he needed it in the uh, defense of what I would call his correct exposition of the biblical understanding of soteriology. In other words, the uh, the doctrine of salvation. Antinomianism is a theology that has been traced, you can really go all the way back to the 2nd century Gnostics. Why? Because Gnostics ruin everything good and right in the world. Uh, Some justification for it can be found in 1st century apostolic teachings. Uh, Marcion, who we looked at, almost guarantee you he was an antinomian. Any of the heretics that we've discussed or will discuss that would deny the validity or divine origination of the Old Testament... Congratulations, they're more than likely antinomians. All right. so, so what is this boogeyman that we are dealing with? Simply put, antinomianism is the denial of any relevance or purpose upon the New Testament believer of the Old Testament law. It comes from the Greek word "namas," which is uh, one of the words for law. So to be anti namas is by definition to be anti-law. The adherents of this would see the Old Testament law as either being abrogated by a repeal, fulfillment, or in some instances, even replacement. They'll quote things like Acts 21, where Paul's charges are leveled with it because he's not keeping the law, or uh, hyper-readings of the book of Galatians, or the uselessness, quote-unquote, of the law, as Paul explains it in places like 2 Corinthians 3, where he compares and contrasts Jesus and Moses, where Christ is the better deliverer, the better covenant even. So all of these things... Excuse me. All of these things come together to give us antinomianism. So, why do we define this as heretical? For starters, this, uh, I don't know, philosophy, theology, worldview, fails to keep the law-gospel distinction in regards to salvation. The law does not in practicality and should not in our theology stand in any opposition to salvation by grace through faith because there are not two different kinds of biblical salvations. Instead, what we have in Scripture is the law and the gospel working together as two sides of the same salvific coin. And this coin, when re- uh, utilized rightly and spent correctly, brings us to Christ. Uh, Galatians 3, 19-24, one excellent passage. It explains the uh, this interworking of the law and the gospel as they go hand in hand in bringing us Christ to the Savior, convicting, convincing us us of our sin, because otherwise we don't actually see a need for it. This is the the problem with humanity. This is why uh, I believe it's Spurgeon talks about grace to the humble, law to the proud. If you have a proud people, you need to bring them low with the law. It leads to the gospel. It reveals sinfulness without which there is no knowledge of sin. Furthermore, The antinomian rightly believes that he's saved by grace through faith. Nothing of himself, nothing that he has done, no good in him. This is your Ephesians 2.8 and 9. But antinomianism fails to read the very next sentence wherein the the thusly redeemed believer, uh, Ephesians 2.10, is set about the business of doing actual work for the kingdom of God. Now, how are these works defined would be a great question that we need to answer. And I think the answer is simple. They are defined for us in God's law. See, my good works are the things that I do as a Christian that demonstrate both a love of God and a love of my neighbor. Jesus told you, Matthew 22, uh, 36 through 40, those actions are a summary not of the gospel, but of the law. So if you're ever in a church that tells you, oh, we can summarize the gospel by love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor yourself, that's not the gospel. That's the law more on this in a second. I can't define what it means to love God, which is my goal as a Christian, without the standard God Himself has given me in regards to, I don't know, worship, life, and general function in this world. Likewise, without God's commands, I cannot define how I actively love my neighbor from any anything resembling an objective basis. Any, defi- any definition that I give, apart from God's law, would be unique to me, and therefore on its face, it's subjective. Now, keep going. Is the law bad? Well, no. 1 Timothy 1, 8-11, Romans 7, 7-12, Paul tells you himself, the law is good, holy, it is right. Why? The law is an expression of God's righteousness. That's why Jesus never sought to overturn it. Uh, Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Instead, he praises the law. This is the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus expanding the law. He praises it both in his earthly ministry and, and, catch this, in his apostolic empowered ministry. And what I mean by that is you won't find an apostle denigrating the law. You won't find any of the apostles casting out the law. Instead, you will find them upholding it pointing to it as a standard of righteousness, and encouraging believers to follow it. This doesn't change. Go beyond the baseline misidentification of goodness that you would obviously have if you don't have an objective standard. The antinomian position is going to ignore, and that's at its best. At its worst, it's going to reject the clear commands of Christ. What? Yes. Love God more than anything else. Who says that? Jesus does. Matthew 10, 37 through 38. If you love your father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter, not worthy of me. You love God first. But then we are also to love one another as Jesus issues that command in John 13, verses 34 and 35. This command I give you that you love one another. If we are to define those commands by anything other than God and his word, we will have engaged in, wait for it, wait for it, idolatry. See, if I get to define how I love God, then I'm defining God because God gets to define how he's loved. I mean, think about it this way. If you're a a spouse, does your significant other get to look at you and go, you like being loved by X, Y, or Z? You can go, no, no no, I don't. No, no, no. See, I, I don't get to look at my wife and go, see, you, you're you loved, and, and your love, my love for you is demonstrated when I work late. My wife would rightly look at you and go, no, it's not. Your care and provision might be demonstrated, but not your love, and those may be aspects of your love, but they're not your love. Likewise, an abusive spouse doesn't get to look at you and say, well, my love is shown for you in the way I smack you around. No, it isn't. Can, can, can I sign up for something else? See, by redefining how you are loved, what I'm really doing is defining you at your core by my standard. I am redefining who you are and what you are. When we define how we follow God, as opposed to how God defines how we follow him, we are engaged in idolatry. Now, this is so ironic for the antinomian position. Idolatry as every Christian knows, is sinful and wrong. Why? Because it's condemned by God. Where? Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. In his law, Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. You can't define loving God and loving neighbor without defining it through the law. How do I love my neighbor? I don't kill him. That's a law. I don't take his stuff. That's the law. I don't sleep with his wife. That's the law law. In order to define how I do these things, I need to have a standard, a law that gives us some, something to go by. Now, that idea bridges us to our final problem with antinomianism. It's total, complete inability to uphold righteousness for the believer. I hinted at it, now we're going to dive right into it. By denying the effectiveness of God's law, As it is expressed in the Old Testament, the antinomian heresy removes the godly standards that God himself has handed down. And without this consistent and objective standard, we have no way of defining sanctification. And if you can't define what constitutes sanctification, how do you define Christian walking in this world? I mean, how do we live well? Read Ephesians. Here's your homework. Read Ephesians 3, 4, and 5, the practical applications that Paul lays out. How are we supposed to live, quote-unquote, well if we don't have a standard of the law? Paul lays this out. Why? Because we're different from the world around us, and he is not alone in that explanation. See? This is not a Pauline problem. This is a Bible problem, if you want to deny it. John the Baptist, what did he do? He asked the religious leaders for proof of their conversions. Luke 3, through, uh, verses 7 through 8. John the Apostle told us, uh, warned us against loving the world and told us by extension we should hate the world and our sin. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Oh, Peter, the mouthpiece of the apostles, you know, the, the, the one who stands up and preaches, right? What does he do? He tells his readers to be holy in a quote of Leviticus. And to reject the lusts of the world and walk in godliness, First Peter 1, 13 through 16. What would rejecting the lusts of the world and walking in godliness look like? Oh, I don't know. Following God's precepts might might be a good start. But perhaps, I mean it might, it might not, but we, we could give it a shot and see what happens. Now. Will any of those things be accomplished by abandoning the law and walking as humanity sees fit? No. There's the there's entire book of the Bible written to say that. It's, it's Judges, the thesis of which is Judges twenty one twenty five. There was no king in Israel in those days, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is clear. Romans 6. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Meganoita. May it never be. And by the way, to walk away from God's standard and to walk in my way, I wonder if there's a Bible verse about... There's a way that seems right to a man, but, but I think that leads to like chocolate chip cookies, right? No, no, that's not it. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the way it leads to righteousness and holiness. No, no, that's not it either. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the way, it le- in the end, it leads to death. Proverbs 14 and Proverbs 16. I think it's 14, 12. I'm not sure about 16. You can read Proverbs 16. It will do you good. This is consistent. This is, again, a biblical definition. We have to be diligent, guarding our hearts, watching our doctrine. Otherwise, we fall into the trap of the world. This is why Jude wrote his letter, so that we would stand firm. So, how do we do this practically? Because I've thrown out a bunch of problems, but now let's solve them, right? That's the idea here. For starters, let's work at keeping the law-gospel distinction in our own minds first. See, remember the two sides of the coin that works in our, um, our hearts and our minds. We see this and we rejoice that who is working? That God is working. Excuse me. God is working at completing his work within us. Yes, he's working at completing his work. That makes sense and I'm going to go with it. Philippians 1. Uh, we rejoice in this. That God who began will complete. We recognize first we are different from the world around us. And therefore, we no longer have a desire to walk in its ways. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us because Christ has redeemed us without any added work or benefit from us. This is your uh, Second Corinthians 5, 20-21. We also realize, this is second, that our good working is, catch this, for a purpose, plus tax. We're not paying Rick Warren any royalties though. It is for a purpose. We would glorify God. Not just in our eternity later on, but in our present walking in the here and now. This is your 1 Corinthians 6. Glorify God with your bodies. Why? Because it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are indwelt by God. Oh, run water down my face. Therefore, you have a calling and an empowering to walk in. See, only when we see this rightly and only when we see this rightly are we put into a position by the power of the Holy Spirit to recognize the great work that God has done and walk in it. See, our salvation was not accomplished with trite or base things that you could buy and sell in this world. See, our salvation was accomplished by God. Through the precious blood of the Lamb, First Peter 1, 17 through 19. When I realize this, I rejoice in the change that has been wrought in me, not by me, in me. I am the new creation of Second Corinthians 5:17, and I seek to honor both the sacrifice and the charge of God to work in His kingdom. As his commissioned amb- ambassador, this is your um, your great commission I- at work. How am I going to do this? How am I going to make disciples? mean, we, we, How many sermons have we preached in churches over the years that demand that, or, well, they probably do demand. We shouldn't demand, but we should ask. But they they, they request of us that we walk in sanctification and godliness. This is one of the em- big emphases of my ministry. This is why we're doing this. Practical theology is the working out of sanctification in your daily life. Living godliness. Why do we do these things? Because we assume the Holy Spirit-empowered believer desires to do these things and therefore will do these things. Excuse me. So we teach, we exhort, we encourage, and we prep so that we are capable of doing these things. Believe it or not, that's all just under the first off. Second off, we have to remember our standard for everything in this world is external to me. Unless you're one of those weirdos that has the entire Bible memorized. And the reason I call you a weirdo is not because what you've done is bad. It's just weird. Like, who has that kind of time or brain capacity? God bless you. Do me a favor. Walk around Walmart every day just reciting scripture left and right. It can't hurt anybody. Just go for it. So, Unless that's you and you have all of scripture memorized, then your standard for righteousness is external. It is in scripture. We have to keep this in mind. Our goal of rightly walking after Christ. See, it's not a walking for me. It's a walking for him. This is your Ephesians 5. Be careful how you're walking. Why? So that we have in our minds a right standard, That defines both what our goal looks like and, catch this, how it is accomplished. This is what scripture does. The standard is scripture because only scripture is God-breathed and capable of standing up to this level of scrutiny. Scripture has the power to reveal my heart. Scripture has the power to show God's mercy. Scripture has the power to separate me literally from myself at the base level. This is Hebrews 4, sharp swords, bones, and marrow, joint spirit, all that good stuff. Only the revelation of Christ, Hebrews 1, can in only in that revelation can I define my righteousness as it has been wrought in Christ so that my works as the new creation, we've mentioned that before, can be pleasing to the Father as they have been done in honor of Jesus. His son. See, this is how these things work together. If I reject the law, then I reject the objective standard. The, I reject the objective standard of Scripture. And if I have done that, I have removed all of those things that Scripture does from my life. I have essentially neutered it and I have rejected the work of the Holy Spirit. That's not good. That is no good. No good. Don't do that. We don't want to walk there. Instead, I want to objectively follow what God has laid down and define my good works not by me or by my comparison to other people, but I want to define my good works by him. And this is true not because I am good, but specifically because he and he alone is good. God is good. I am not. This is our our caveman theology. If we haven't done this before, then I'm sorry. We should have done this sooner caveman theology, right? We want to be able to express the gospel in simple terms. Me bad, him good. Uh, uh. Because I know that my works do not save me. Instead, catch this, they reveal my salvation. See, this is James 2. This is the point that James is making. If my faith does not move me to action, then it's not a faith that saves. But, If my faith does move me to action, and it moves me to godly action, i.e. love of God and love of neighbor, which is a summation of the law, then it proves the presence of the Holy Spirit, and my faith has been shown to be valid as all tests of faith will ultimately reveal, be it James 1, 1 Peter 1, Romans 5, Jesus in Luke 6, Jesus in Luke 12, any of those things regardless of the test, it proves my faith and reveals it. This is good. This is how it functions rightly in my life. That's why I recognize my badness in his goodness, because it drives me away from myself and drives me rightly to the foot of the cross, whereby God's grace and mercy, I am redeemed and then set about the task of being sanctified and working as a disciple in his kingdom. And that's our final little stopping point. The final corrective holy living. See, God has saved us, and He's done it without our help. Because God has done this, not because of us, but because of Him, He has saved, He is good. Therefore, we are careful about how we walk in this world. This is, again, your Ephesians chapter 5. Our goal in this place should be to see our faith setting down deep roots. Why do we want deep roots, Colossians 2? Because when we have deep roots, we have a strong tree. And when we have a strong tree, we produce good fruit. Huh. If only there was a Bible verse somewhere about the Holy Spirit producing good fruit as opposed to rotten fruit. I mean, you know, they should have put that in like Galatians 5. That would have been so helpful like like you know, contrasting the evil works for like two or three verses and then explaining how the Holy Spirit produces good works for a couple of verses. See, that would have been awesome if Paul had done that in like Galatians 5, you know, 22 and 23 or something like that. See, when we follow those things, we are now glorifying God. And when we seek to do that in every avenue of our life, we are glorifying God in, catch this, everything that we do, like Colossians 3.17 would tell you. See, this is the goal. Precisely because we recognize the great work that has been done, not by us, but for us. Because, as John puts it, uh, 1 John um, 1, through 8-10, our sin is real and it is terrifying. But God can and will cleanse us from it if we do what? If we repent and come to Him. That's why when you get to chapter 2, we can rejoice in 1 John in the keeping of His commandments, 1 John 2, uh, 3 through 6. Not because we're afraid of the consequences but because we have been set free from the consequences and we are now secure in our salvation. See, we're not worried. We're we're not afraid. We're not... We're not living in condemnation. We're living in the light and joy of Christ in his freedom. We are the captives set free, Luke 4. We are the blind who have received sight. We are the starving who have been given bread. We are those thirsting for righteousness, being satisfied by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is Christian living in action. He has saved us. He has loved us. And because of that, because we are born anew, we love our Father who is in heaven. He won't cast us out. John 6 has already shown shown us that. Instead, he will free us. And John 8, if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. And we love and we cherish this freedom. We use that freedom day in and day out, year in and year out, to glorify our Savior, praise his great name glorify his works, because to do less would be to ignore the call of our hearts and forsake our new selves in Christ. See, this is an internal motivation for the Christian. This is why antinomianism is condemned as a heresy, to reject the law's prescriptive correction is to reject what the Holy Spirit is attempting to bring in your life. To be able to reject what the Holy Spirit is to, is bringing in your life is to be able to resist God. No. 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 You cannot, you do not, you will not. If you are able to live a laissez-faire, hedonistic, antinomian lifestyle, with no thought of sanctified glory in this life, then you are able to walk away from God, which means you are not gods to begin with, John 6 and John 10. This is the warning that this heresy brings. That's again why this is heresy, because it brings low the glory of God. It brings low the joys of his sanctification. It brings low the glory of his gospel, and it brings high us. And anything that brings high us and points us out as the standard or the glory is by definition the wrong thing. So, what have we learned here today, children? God makes the rules. Our responsibility is following God. And our following of God is determined by God's standards, not our own. So there you go. Don't be an antinomian. It's not good for you. It's bad, bad, bad. Bad, bad, bad. It's a bad, bad plan. So if you want to know what I just said or you want to be able to write everything down because you weren't following along, you can... um PracticalTheologyMinistries.com The write-up will get posted about the same time this went live, so if you're listening to it, it's already on the website. Just uh, click onto the blog and it'll be there. You can also find the player there under podcast and you can catch up on past episodes. You can hear worship services from Calvary Baptist Church in Rockford, Illinois, where you are more than welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 10.30. We, uh, we are here live and in person. The sermons are posted the next day on the church's YouTube channel and on the church's website. And you can also, if you're not able to join us, at 10.30 Central Daylight Time, so that would be minus 6 UTC, you can stream that service live here on Podbean. We'd love to have you. My wife is usually the one manning the computer, so when you log into the little room there, say hey, tell her you listen to the podcast, and she'll get a good chuckle, and my head won't fit through the door on the way out, so it'll be hysterical. But until you do all of that, or until we see you guys again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. God bless. God bless.